Here at Doxedo Hatfield, we are a family on mission. Make sure to get connected by joining us at one of our Sunday services. We hope you enjoy today's message. Can I ask you to take out your Bible with me if that's all right, whether it's in your hand, on your phone, device, whatever it is, and you can turn in your Bible with me to the first book of the New Testament, that's Matthew, if you're wondering, chapter 3, and we're going to be starting in verse 13. So Matthew chapter 3, and if you're new with us or you haven't been here in a while, let me just bring you up to speed. We're continuing our series that we're calling Jesus Uncensored, where we are looking at all these encounters, face-to-face encounters that Jesus had with a whole range of people. Um, all throughout his life and ministry, and the one constant that you see is that people are left changed forever when they encounter Jesus. Um, And what we're trusting for is that now in 2019, for us today, that we can be transformed. We can be, you know, renewed, afresh maybe, but also for the first time as we look at these encounters that Jesus had with other people, that the scriptures would come alive in your life this morning through God's Spirit and His people and His Word. Um, and so this morning, we're continuing with that, but I want to say that we are making a bit of a, of, a, of a turning of a corner in the series, because you'll see we, we hand out these cards every week, these playing cards, just to remind you of the moment that we have, and it's always asking these two questions. How can you encounter Christ in your own life, but also how can people in our city encounter Christ through you? So please take these with you and maybe stick it on your fridge, on your friend's forehead, wherever um, it most reminds you of what we're busy with. But we're turning a corner in the sense that up to this point, Jesus and the encounters we've looked at, it's been with people. And this morning's encounter is not with a person per se, uh, because it's a bit different. And the reason for it is something we've been saying over and over again over the last couple of weeks is that Jesus is not just a good teacher and his teaching you can try and apply to your life, or he's a good moral example, and so try and follow him. No, what we've been saying is that Jesus has come to do something through his life, death, and resurrection. He's come to accomplish something, and we put our faith, our trust, and our hope in what he has done. And what I want you to see this morning, one of the things that we're going to look at that he has done for us as he has come to defeat evil on our behalf. And let me lay my cards like a bad poker player on the table. This is the main thought for this morning. This is a thing you have to take home, that yes, we have a great enemy that fights against us. That's true. But we have an even greater victor who is fighting for us. That's the truth. And so to see that, to discover that, to to bring us to bear in our hearts to this truth, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the way that Jesus is prepared for his ministry. We're going to look at that moment, and what happens is you've got two moments that have been sandwiched kind of back-to-back, very specifically for very good reason. So read with me, Matthew 3, verse 13. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee at, uh, to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. But John tried to stop him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me. Jesus answered him, Allow it for now, because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John allowed him to be baptized, and when Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And then it says, the tempter approached him and said, 
If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He answered, it's written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, and he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, he will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands so that you would not strike your foot against the stone. But Jesus told him, it's also written, do not test the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will just fall down and worship me. And then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him and angels came and began to serve him. There is so much in the scripture I wish we could touch upon this morning. I'm telling you, this is 10 weeks worth of material, but I want us to focus today and just see one or two very, very key thoughts as to what we learn about this enemy that opposes us. And the first thing I want us to understand is this idea, the truth, the the nature of, the reality of the enemy that we face. Now, what you'll see is that after this baptism moment, Jesus faces this incredibly difficult trial, but that is just the start. (laughs) This is actually, you know, the the path of the course for the rest of Jesus' life. From this point onwards, it's just rejection. It's attempts on his life. It's betrayal. It's poverty. It's grief. It's loss. It's torture. And finally, it's death. Everything almost goes south from this point onwards for Jesus. Now, what does that teach us? Two things, but the second one we'll get to right at the end. The first is, it teaches us that the reality of evil that we face in this life is robust and it's comprehensive. There is genuine evil that opposes us. That's the truth. Now, I want you to understand that if you make a statement like that on you know, the hilltops of Pretoria, um, that will be interpreted in many different ways. In our world today, people have got wildly different perspectives on what we would call evil. And some people struggle. All people have to struggle in their own worldview. No matter the religion or the philosophy or whatever it is that you walk according to in your life, you have to, like all people, wrestle with the great evil that we are faced with. Just this week reading some of the newspaper again, um, you can't help but say there is great evil at work in our city, in our country, in our world. And all these different worldviews, philosophies have to wrestle with that. So let me give you a couple of examples of how they do that. One worldview is called dualism, where you say, you know, that can be found in some of the ancient Greek um, religion. It can be found even today in things like karma and so forth, where you say the world is actually made up of these two equally matched forces, It's almost when you go outside our venue, you'll see there's a little arm wrestling table set up with rules and everything, so you can take out your buddy, you know, and see who's the strongest between the two of you. That's almost this worldview, that there is evil and good, and the world is the epic struggle between the biceps of evil and the biceps of good, and who's going to win, you know, we don't know. And the problem is, in this worldview, evil can never actually be defeated. The moment it looks like evil is getting the upper hand or good's getting the upper hand, you know, they strike back at one another, it's this epic struggle going back and forth. Maybe another worldview will they not be dualism, but pantheism, pan meaning all. In other words, God is in everything. Everything is God. We, you know, God is found in the tree, in the person, in the rock, in the caterpillar, but all those things are God, and God is all those things. 
Many, many religions, actually, something like Eckhart Tolle's, you know, or some of the things like The Secret, or a lot of these, you know, Oprah Winfrey-like worldviews of today, they cash in on this idea of all things being God. But you see, when the pantheist looks at the person who is struck down by cancer, or when they see the person suffering in poverty, what they have to say is, my friend, if you could only see that this evil, this suffering is also God. And if you could only see that all these things are so beautifully connected because God is all, he is even the suffering and the evil. And so again, the answer is, it's just an illusion. There is no such thing as evil. You can't actually deal with it in that worldview. Or how about a third one? It's not pantheism. It's not, you know, these two strong oppositions of dualism, but it's secularism. In our world, a lot of people would say, I don't believe in any of this stuff. This is nonsense. There are no gods. There's no spiritual world out there. All we have is what we can see and put under a microscope. That's, that's it. That's the fullness of the world out there. And the challenge with that is, you would see, you know, a couple of years ago, in the kind of modernist way of thinking, we would have said, if you look at someone who's committing evil, people that are engaged in evil things, actually all that's happening is, you know what, we all blank slates. You know, we, we get born as just absolutely pure whiteboard And then from there on, the way your parents raised you, the things that happen in your life, the environment you grew up in, those things steer you towards evil. And so in the end, you can't really be held genuinely accountable for that because that's just the environment that raised you. That's evil. You know, in the novel that the movie was later based on, uh, The Silence of the Lambs, what a scary, scary movie, Um, you know, where they have this monstrous serial killer in Hannibal Lecter. There's a moment where he is speaking to Clarice, and he is, you know, she's engaging him, and she asks him, what happened to you that you would do such horrendous things to other people? And listen to what he says. He says, nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up on good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me. Officer Starling, he repeats that very creepily. He says, can you stand to say that I am evil? You see, he has her and this whole modernist mindset exactly where he wants it. He says, you can't say that, can you? You can't say that I'm genuinely evil because guess what? You have to, in a sense, go back to all the parents and the friends and the loved ones of those people that I've carved up, that I have murdered, that I've bludgeoned, and you have to tell them it's because of my mother. It's because of how she raised me. And it's not really her fault either. That's just the effect of her environment. There's no true thing like evil. You have to brush it aside. What a comfort in a world that we live in. Or maybe the postmodernist view that we have at the moment. Actually, there's no such thing as good and evil. Isn't that true? It's just your perspective. It's my perspective. What you see as the rebel fighter, you know, that's my liberator. And so if you say something's evil, that's just your perspective. We can agree to disagree because there is no real thing as good or evil. You know, Ravi Zacharias, he's a Christian philosopher, and he, I saw this uh, clip once where he was, he was engaging a whole bunch of students at an Ivy League university in America, and at the end, this elder gentleman stands up quite frustrated, and he says to him, because he had been speaking about evil and injustice and all these big, you know, issues that we all struggle with, and this man says, how can you say that something is evil? There is no such thing. And so Ravi said, If I were to take, and sorry if this is a bit graphic for a moment, he says, if I were to take a newborn in front of all of us here, and I take a big knife, and I start carving up that newborn in front of all of you, would that be evil, he asks this man. And unfortunately, like Hannibal Lecter, he kind of has him. And this man replies, and he says, 
you know what, I, I wouldn't like what you are doing, but I can't actually say that it's evil. That's the truth. You see, whether it's dualism or pantheism or secularism or all these different worldviews, we don't have the tools in our worldview, the city that we live in, most people living here don't have the tools in their tool set to deal with the true evil that we face on a daily basis. So we have to wave it away. And then the Bible comes, and I think the Bible gives us such a different worldview when it comes to evil. The Bible says, let me give you a robust and comprehensive view of evil. And here's what it looks like. It says, you know what? You can't confine the evil in our world to just human choice, or it's just psychology or pharmacology. It's just the way that you grew up. It's just the influences of your world. It's just the society we live in. It says, yes, those things are true. And we see many examples of that in the Bible where those influences are true and great. But the Bible says, even if you take all those things together, the sum of them would not account for all the true evil that we see around us. It's not enough. No, the Bible comes and he says, let me give you something more personal, something more conniving, something more strategic. Let me give you the literal personification of evil, Satan. The devil, the great enemy. The Bible says you cannot account for all of this by mere psychology. There is someone There is something with intent, not just behind all of it, but on top of all of it, around all of it. And when the, you know, the the rebellion of man's heart is met by an even greater amplification of it in the enemy, when our struggle is amplified by his intention, we find what we find today. So, you know, we could literally, again, we could spend 10 weeks going just through some of the theology of the enemy. So I can't do that this morning, but just listen to this one verse. That makes this point. Acts 5 verse 3, we have in the early church, one of the first events of the early church's adventure together, we have this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, and they are seeing everyone around them being so generous, and they love the generosity, and they don't want to be generous themselves because they would actually cost you. That's what church is. It costs our time and treasures and talents. So what they do is they say, we'll just pretend to be generous, and we'll lie about what we're actually contributing. And listen to what Peter says to this husband. He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds? But then later, look in verse 4, what he says then to the same man, why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? Isn't that amazing? He says in one you know, sentence, why have you allowed the enemy to creep into your heart? And on the other hand, why are you making this decision in your own heart? So he's saying, guess what? Yes, there is the person. Yes, there is intention. You are truly accountable for what you do. But even more than that, even more than the rebellion and the brokenness of mankind, there is this person. There is this personification of evil itself at work. The Bible says that is the account that we have for all the evil. But just before you get too uh, creeped out this morning, I want you to take heart because the Bible's not dualistic. 
And it's not saying that evil and God is in this epic struggle. Who's going to win? You know, God's biceps are bulging as he's trying to arm wrestle the devil down. He's wondering every day, you know, will we, will we make it, guys? We have to really pray. We have to warfare because we're falling behind. No, that's not the picture at all. The Bible says you get one category of things created, and then you get another category, God. And the one is infinitely removed from the other. It's not a contest. It's not even a subject of discussion. Probably one of my favorite books of all time is A.W. Tozer's The Knowledge of the Holy. And listen to what he says just about the transcendence of God. God is so transcended above all things we can't even comprehend it. He says, forever God stands apart in light unapproachable. He is as high above an archangel, that's what the enemy is, as above a caterpillar. For the gulf, the gap that separates the archangel from the caterpillar is but finite, while the gulf between God and the archangel is infinite. The caterpillar and the archangel, though far removed from each other, in the scale of created things, are nevertheless one in that they are alike created. They both belong in the category of that which is not God and are separated from God by infinitude itself. God is not worried, stressed. He is not, you know, thinking, what are we going to do? God is infinitely above the enemy we face. And most of the worldviews out there have no way to deal. How are we going to deal with this evil? And the Bible says, in our picture, it's not up for question anymore. It's not up for discussion. The end is clear. The infinite God has won the victory over evil. It's done. And we live in that reality. That's the hope that we have in Christ. That's the truth of our enemy. But the second thing we see is not just the truth, the reality, but also the strategy of this enemy. We see in this account, this encounter with Jesus, we see something of the strategy that he employs. Now, I think it's, it's amazing that over the last couple of years, as with decades past, the devil has made quite a comeback in popular media. I don't know if you've noticed this. And he's always portrayed in one of two ways, it feels like, mostly. He's either a bumbling idiot or he's this, you know, Euro character you can, you can rally behind. So I think of classic movies like The Devil's Advocate with Al Pacino and Keanu Reeves, where he's this kind of conniving, you know, slimeball character. Um, or, you know, South Park has for years had this reoccurring devil character who's a bit of a flop. He's a bit of an idiot. He's a bit of a walkover. Even today, you know, when I was younger, Sabrina the Teenage Witch was a PG kind of 13-like show. Now it's this dark, dark show with the devil personified. And again, similar to a show like Lucifer, he's this kind of ladies' man. You know, people like him, and he's just, you know, he's the life of the party. You can rally behind him. I think these kinds of portrayals so satisfy the devil because it makes him either so stupidly, uh, you know, uh, unhelpful in any way. He's so incompetent that you don't take him seriously at all. Or in a secular view, it's like, you know, that famous line, the, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince you that he's not real, that he doesn't exist. That's almost the one picture. Or the other one, he becomes this hero character. You know, he's actually the sign of standing up to truth, and he's the one we can rally behind and make our symbol. I want you to listen just how differently the Bible portrays the enemy with much more subtlety. And on the one hand, it's such a disarming picture. It's such a non-threatening picture that the Bible uses. Because in this passage, it says in verse 1, Then Jesus was led into the wilderness to what? To be tempted by the devil. 
And that word devil that they use, that the Greek is the word diabolos. And it simply means the slanderer. The slanderer. To slander someone is to say untrue things about them in order to tear down their reputation. When Shay and I used to work in an office before I joined the church full-time, there was this one lady who would very friendly in the morning greet you and then proceed to pretty much gossip about everyone in the office all the time. Um, And there was this rumor at one stage going around that both of us were having affairs with other people in the office. Uh, I was shocked. This lady would be so friendly to you in the morning and then turn around and tell people, no, actually, you know, he's sleeping with this person and she's sleeping with that person. What was she doing? She was slandering us, saying untrue things in order to tear down your image or reputation. That is exactly what we see the enemy doing. Exactly what he was doing to Jesus is exactly what he does to us. He slanders, he swindles, he twists, he turns, he distracts. That is his modus operandi. He does not have genuine power. He can only distract or confuse a bit. So I've taken together a whole bunch of scriptures for you. Just listen to as I read through it. These are some of the things that the Bible says. This is what he actually does. 1 Corinthians 7, it says he tempts. 2 Corinthians 11 says he disguises himself. Acts 26 says he influences. 2 Corinthians 12 says he torments. 2 Thessalonians 2 says he presents false miracles, signs, and wonders. 1 Thessalonians 2 says he hinders us. Or 2 Timothy 2 says he traps. These are all things that do not speak of this infinite power. It speaks of someone who is looking to, seeking to distract you, to pull you away, to turn your face And the question is, away from what to what? It's simple. The enemy wants to turn your attention, your heart, away from God. Why? Because if he can do that, he removes you, he removes us from the source of life itself. From the one in which we have true joy, true identity, true security. We have hope and a future where we have a mission and a calling and a vocation. If he can pull me away from God, yes, I will continue to live outwardly. I will be like the living dead. Yes, I will still spend and work and go on vacation and do all these things as I'm serving my lesser gods of sex or business or esteem or friends. And those become my little gods that I serve who eventually disappoint and destroy me. Yes, you will continue living, but on the inside, you are dead. You are but a shell of what God has destined you to be. My favorite verse in the whole Bible, Psalm 16 verse 11 says, You, God, reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. That is what God wants, or the devil, the enemy wants to pull us away from. That's why 1 Timothy 5.15 says, For some have already turned away to follow Satan. That's all that he can do. He can frustrate. He can lie. He can tempt. He can call. But he can't actually touch us. I don't know if you see this, but several times the devil says to Jesus in this encounter, If you are the Son of God, you see what he's doing. God has just spoken such truth over Jesus. He says, you're my beloved son. I'm well pleased in you. He has affirmed his affirmation over him. He's affirmed his calling and his worth and his joy. And the enemy says, that's exactly where I'm going to try and tackle you now. If I can remove that security from your heart, you're done for. 
If I can just remove this affirmation that God has spoken over you, dislodge it from your heart and your soul, that you would doubt it. Because that's, in a sense, when you look at those three temptations, that's what he's doing. He's trying to get Jesus to ask God, God, please, through a sign, through a miracle, show me that you love me. Show me that you affirm my calling. But guess what? You only ask for a sign like that when you doubt. Isn't that true? If my wife or my kids or a good friend says, Joe, I love you. And I say, no, show it to me. Please prove it to me. What is that saying? It's, it's, it says that I'm doubtful of that. I'm not sure of that. That's exactly what the enemy wants. If I can get you, if I can get Jesus to doubt the everlasting goodness of God, if I can get you to doubt the free grace and the abundant love of God, I've got you. That's all that he can do. That's why I love this description in John 8, 40, uh, 44, where it says, speaking of Satan, it says, he was a murderer from the beginning. How does he murder? He does it like this. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. He wants you to lose sight of and not believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that what he has done is for you and includes you. Guys, do you understand that if Jesus, in my heart, in my mind, is just a good man, he's a good teacher, and I can work hard to please God through doing what he's told me to do, man, that is a, that's a life not well spent. That's a life on a treadmill called religion. But if I can come to the understanding, to the revelation, to the conviction that Jesus has done it on my behalf. He doesn't come as an example. He comes as the one to do what I could not do. That changes everything. So the enemy wants you to not believe that Jesus is who he is. He wants you to, to think, wow, nice man, nice example. Let me try and imitate him. And I mean, notice what Jesus is actually this is what's spoken over him at his baptism. It says here, the father says, this is my beloved son. That's the father actually quoting Psalm 2. <laughs> and the theme of Psalm 2 is that Jesus is the, he's the Messiah. He's the one come to tear down evil, to break the stronghold of, of sin and death and brokenness. And then he says, but I am well pleased in him. He's quoting Isaiah 53. That's what the father is doing. And Isaiah 53 says that this conquering king, this, this king who comes to destroy evil, is also the suffering servant. You see the picture that God is sketching about Jesus. He is not a good man simply or a wise teacher. He is the conquering king come to destroy evil by taking it upon himself. He's the suffering servant king who doesn't come to give you just an example to follow. He comes to live the life and die the death and raise on your behalf that which you could not accomplish. He doesn't come to say do and do and do so that God would maybe accept you. He says, it's finished. I have done it. And please hear me this morning. This is so important. Through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, through what he has done, if I put my faith in that, what he accomplishes is so that God the Father would look at you this morning and look at me this morning in Jesus, and he would say, this is my son, this is my daughter in whom I am well pleased, my beloved. That is what Jesus accomplishes on our behalf. 
Now, do you know what that does to you if you truly live from the place of a finished work? That is like the fountainhead, the source. That's the taproot of the greatest joy you can ever tap into in this life. It's unending joy. It's perfect joy. I don't serve God or obey God or try to follow His wisdom because I have to, because I have to pay Him back, because I feel bad for Jesus. No, I do that as a response to the great love that God has shown me. I don't try and prove myself to you or to God anymore because I have been found in Jesus perfectly pleasing and beloved to God. I am not made or broken by the opinions of other people anymore. I'm not made or broken by the failures or the successes of my life because in Jesus I've been found perfectly beloved by God. Do you see why the enemy wants to rob you of this? This kind of power, this kind of joy, this kind of conviction. If you have this, he has nothing. People who live from this finished joy have absolutely nothing to fear from the enemy. This is what he wants to rob you of. And so this morning, if you are not a Christian, if you are still trying to figure out what it means to follow Christ, the enemy wants to keep you from seeing the good news gospel of Jesus as a finished work on your behalf. And he wants you to, to think that he's just a good man that you can you know, brush aside. He wants you to think that it's what you can do for God instead of what God has done in Christ for us. But if you're a Christian here this morning, and I know there's a couple of you, If you're a Christian here this morning, he cannot touch your position that you have in Jesus. Romans 8 says, who can bring condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus? Who can bring conviction before God? No one. But what he can do is he can get you in your mind to return to a place where your self-image is based on your works. Yes, Jesus, you are the king. Man, I've got to work hard to make sure that stays the case. And it's now about your Bible reading and your life. And if I ask you this morning, how's it going in your faith? And you start telling me, oh, Joe, I struggled this week with my Bible study and I didn't get up early enough, but this week I'm back at church and I'm doing my best. He's like, yes, that's good. I've got you. That's so great. That is what he wants to do. That's all he can do. And please just recognize before we finish over this last thought, how the baptism and the temptation of Jesus are sandwiched together by this one word, then. It says, Jesus, you know, he hears the voice of God speak this beautiful affirmation over him, and then he goes into the desert and he's tempted. You see, we often think, God, if I could just live a glorifying life, if I could just please you, if I can do all the things I must do, then you will give me a comfortable life, a good life, an easy life, everything that I need and want. Isn't that true? Is that the truth? No, because here is the one person who actually did that, who actually lived a pleasing life, who absolutely perfected before God. And then in the greatest moment of victory, it says, then he goes and he is tempted and and he's taken to task by the devil. Friends, can I encourage you this morning? It's when you are in the will of God that the enemy is worried about you. Do you hear that? If you are spinning your wheels out there with the rest of our city, running after sex and money and career and friends, and you made or broken by those things, if you're serving those little gods, the enemy's like, great, I don't have to worry about that one, because you are serving your own gods. 
But when I say, yes, Jesus, I put my faith in you and I want to follow you from a place of love. I want to step into my commission, into my vocation. I want to be part of your church, bringing spiritual lostness and it's addressing those things and, and bringing hope and restoration to this city. Then the enemy says, oh my goodness, I'm sweating bullets because this one understands what they've been called to do. It's when the prophet and the painter and the plumber and the programmer and the doctor and the lawyer and the mom, when they understand who they are in Christ, the enemy says, now, then the enemy came. So can I encourage you this morning? The enemy knows where you are weak. He knows which lies at what times and in what ways to feed you. So can I ask you this morning, what are those lies that have taken root in your heart? What, not if, what lies about your marriage, about your calling, about your life, about your worth, about your identity, about who Christ is? What have we allowed the enemy to speak into our hearts? Because I love this. First Peter 5 verse 8 says, be sober-minded, friends. Be alert. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, is prowling. Second Corinthians 2.11 says, um, so that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan. Why? Because we are not ignorant of his schemes. I know what you are doing, friend. I know what you are doing. And I recognize it in my life, and I hear the lie, and I say no more. In Jesus, no more. Go away, Satan. So to finish off this morning, it's not just this truth, this reality of our enemy, and it's not just the strategies that he employs, but I want you to see this morning, it's his defeat. That's the key of this passage. It's the defeat of this enemy. Once the preacher saying he has been disarmed and defeated, so he has no feet or any arms left. That is the core of this passage. How did Jesus deal with Satan? Can we agree that he does not with a magical incantation, send the enemy away. He blasts him with like a Dragon Ball Z-like, you know, surge of holy power. That is not what, you know, that's not what Jesus does in the desert. That would have been flippin' amazing, by the way, but that's not what he does. And I'm not saying in the New Testament, you often see people who are genuinely oppressed spiritually and Jesus has to exercise them. So that happens every now and then. But for the most part, the enemy does not attack us with fangs in your neck. He attacks you with lies in your heart. That's what he does. And so what does Jesus do? He speaks the truth. He speaks the truth to the lie. Because if he can get me to disbelieve the goodness of God, you see that in, in the garden, isn't it? He doesn't come to Adam and Eve and he, you know, he, he, he just, it's fireworks and, and magic and, and a whole bunch of special effects. No, he just says, is that true? Is that really the truth? He just tears down the character of God in your heart. He just comes to twist the promises of God in your heart. He just comes to sow doubt in your heart because the Bible says your heart is not just a seed of emotion in your life. Your heart is where the true conviction of your life is lived out. So if the enemy can get you to say, in my mind, I believe that God is gracious, but in my heart, I am so sure that he's deeply disappointed with me. The enemy's like, yes, I got you. So what does Jesus do? He speaks the truth. He is so filled with the word of God that when he is squeezed like a lemon, all that comes out is truth. So all three times Jesus quotes scripture. And that first temptation is Deuteronomy 8 verse 3 and then 6 verse 16 and then 6 verse 13. He just quotes 
the truth of the Scripture back to the enemy. It is written. Even in Jesus' most dire moment on the cross, he's in the worst pain. He's in the worst you know, moment that he's ever faced. What does he do? He just quotes Psalm 22 verse 1. Jesus was so filled by fellowship with other people, by being alone, going out and spending time with his Father, by being invested in the Scriptures, by listening to the prophecy of the Spirit, by spending time with those who love God. He was so filled with the Word that when the enemy tried to chip away, truth just came out and he had to flee. Now, I ask you this morning, friends, if Jesus Christ did not think it good to go into battle without a full spectrum of the Word in his heart, how do we think we're going to do differently? How do I think I'm going to survive in my marriage and not have him tear it down because a torn down marriage is a win for the enemy? How do I think in my vocation as a doctor or a teacher, how do I think that in my journey with God in church, the moment I step into the will of God when he attacks, that I will survive without the word of God in me? No, the encouragement is let the Word of God and the Spirit of God and the people of God invest that Scripture in you. And the music that you listen to and the conversations you have and church, if He can just get you to think, you know, church or, you know, the people of God, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, they're all nice to have. They're extras. Once I get time, I'll get to the Bible. If I have enough energy, I'll get to the church. If I am comfortable enough, I'll have someone over at my house that will encourage me. If I am in a space where I've got just so much margin, I will change some of the patterns of my life. He says, I've got you. Because you will be found empty when the enemy comes knocking. And the beautiful thing is the enemy says, I can do nothing when the word is presented to me. Nothing. That's why I love Ephesians 6 verse 11. Read this with me. It says, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand, not run or flee against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, spiritual forces in heaven. And for this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day. And having prepared everything, take your stand. Stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist. The truth of God defeats the lies of the enemy. Learn to recognize it and learn to stand in it. What are the patterns of my life when it comes to the truth of God? Do we have good friends that remind us of? Do we have community that builds us? Do we have a relationship with the Spirit where I listen? I'm so guilty of that, I can tell you. God, I'm making time to just hear what you have to say. The enemy is defeated, friends. It's over. And maybe the worship team can join me. Because we're going to respond in a moment. But I want you just to hear this for a second. There is such a big difference between a battle and a war. Do you know that? Battles are short little things, skirmishes that make up a much bigger issue. And in the scripture today, I want you to hear that the, the war is over. That's what Jesus says. The enemy is defeated. Now go to battle. The enemy's done, so now stand in truth. And for me, still the best example of that is Lieutenant Yuro Onoda, the Japanese soldier. I've told this story before. 
And he's stationed by the Japanese army in the Second World War in this Philippine island called Lubang. And he's asked to keep his station there, protect, you know, secure your perimeter. And he fights valiantly all throughout the war. But here's what happens. Eventually, he gets sidetracked and he's, you know, taken away from the rest of his battalion. And so he says, I'm going to stake it out in the jungle here. I won't, I won't sacrifice my post. But what happens is the war actually ends. But the news never reaches this poor man. So get this, for 29 years, he protects his post in the jungle, fighting a war that's long gone. To such an extent that eventually they have to find his superior officer. And 29 years later, they have to find him in the jungle. And this man has to come and relieve him of his post, having wasted 29 years of his life. Why? Because he was not living in the reality of a finished war. And here it says of Jesus, because this is, the, this is the true ammunition that we have in this war against this enemy, in this passage. It's Jesus himself. It's Jesus himself. Hebrews 2.14 says, Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these. He also came to this earth like you and me to suffer and to die and to be tempted so he can understand what you're going through. But it says this, so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death. That is the devil. Or well, 1 John 3 verse 8, this just says, the son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. Friends, the war is over. And so God just calls us, stand in truth. Stand for your marriage. Stand for your purpose. Stand for your calling. Yes, we face a great enemy, but we have an even greater victor who has fought and is fighting and will fight on our behalf. So let's stand together. Jesus, I just pray this morning, God, for every single heart. May we be found in the finished work of Christ. God, and may every person here this morning that is still living from untruth, still living from lie, from deception, may we, God, be found in the victor of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's respond.